0: You're listening to Just, stories about the people working to build thriving communities rooted in justice. I'm Jess Averhart, co-founder of Black Wall Street Homecoming.
1: And I'm Rob Shields, executive director of the ReCity Network.
0: All right, look, so here's why we're here. We're here to get proximate. We're here to listen. We're here to process. And we're here to help you process.
1: But here's what we're not going to do. We're not going to be preachy because we don't have all the answers and we will never make you feel like an outsider.
0: Keeping with the theme of sharing, we always want to acknowledge the whole person. And that starts with our personal, personal check-in. In. Let's do
1: it. All right, Jess, here we are Morning. again. Another day, 2020.
0: Groundhog day.
1: The year yeah. that keeps on being a single day.
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: How is your 2020 these days? Oh my
0: gosh, not my whole year. Let's see. Well, listen, we all have our own experience with this year. But as early as this morning, and our listeners can't see this, although we are on Zoom, I'm drinking my Starbucks. And I went through the line, and it was pumpkin scone and pumpkin latte and pumpkin, right? So that kind of is the joke. But I was so grateful to see anything with pumpkin spice in it today, because it felt finally like seasons were changing. It felt like maybe a renewed, something was new. That's pretty much it. Something was new. So I was like, oh my gosh. I even told the lady who was talking to me through the mic, she was like, Can I take your order? I was like, pumpkin is out. And she was like, Yes, ma'am, would you like a like a scone? I was like, actually, no. I just wanted to acknowledge that we are entering a new season. You know what I mean? So that was cool. And Apple stock split. And we were talking about that earlier. So 2020 is certainly profitable for some because they are killing the game in Apple and Tesla. Did you buy your stock?
1: No, I didn't. I didn't. I just, I know nothing about stocks. I should know more. But I'm like, I think there's literally been apps created for my demographic where like, hey, all that seems really complicated to you. Let's do stocks for dummies. I need that app.
0: Listen, I think we shouldn't underestimate. I think what 2020 will will provide us are opportunities like this one space to learn these types of seemingly elitist investment strategy spaces that mm-hmm. we don't get into because we're scared we don't know enough but it's not it i think it's perceived that way so that we don't enter those spaces and historically elite groups are allowed to understand that i'm my son is going to know this stuff and in fact we're going to talk about it today so that's how my 2020 is going growing learning seasons are changing how is your 2020
1: <laughs> How was my 2020? Yeah, you're right. I I did ask you a really unfair question. It's like. You really did.
0: And I went all around the world.
1: Summarize nine months. You know, tell us, tell us how has it been, you know, consolidate that answer into into 90 second soundbite. I'm doing okay. I resonate with what you're saying about like the changing of season and how much we're just, we're wired to want that kind of change. Starbucks is going to do well. Maybe I should buy some Starbucks stock. This idea of anything that would help signify change.
0: It works. Might as well put the Valentine's Day stuff out.
1: That's right. I'm trying to celebrate the the moments that we can while also trying to navigate all the things that are happening. And we were talking about this offline, just this idea of stories and how we have to be careful and almost mindful of how much weight of other stories we can carry at any given time. I saw this on social media where it's just somebody was sharing about historically, we had so little communication available to us where like we could only take on so many people's stories, before the invention of the internet, all these other things. And now we can just take in at every second of every day, stories of people all around the world, right? Hear me. I'm not saying that we shouldn't be aware, but also we also need to be aware of what that's doing to our bodies, doing to our minds, doing to our souls, and just set healthy boundaries. Where it's not like you should just stick your head in the sand and pretend like nothing is happening around your direct sphere. But I don't know if going the exact opposite and almost being like a story junkie, it can get unhealthy. Yeah. And so I think this idea of as we navigate a really tumultuous news cycle and we have all these avenues available, just because we can 24 seven doesn't mean we should. 24 seven. I think we have to find that balance and maybe even for our listeners on this podcast, maybe encouraging them to find ways to say, Hey, make sure when you enter into this, this is, this is something you have the capacity and you're ready to dive into these waters. You need to press pause and you're at your threshold. Then maybe it's okay to press pause and come back to that another time, depending on who you are as you show up to listen, depending on how these topics affect you. It's going to be different to the topic of today's point, right? We're going to be talking about race and the leadership gap when it comes to race in the nonprofit sector like that that's going to cut differently depending on who you are and i think for for some of us if you're a white person listening into to this conversation discomfort may not be a sign that you need to withdraw <laughs> it may be a sign you need to press in but if you're a person of color listening the opposite might be true that's the space we need to hold for different audience members on this journey with us we can't make a one size fits all suggestion for yeah. engaging with this stuff
0: yeah. I mean, we learn that with each other. That's we, right. we We experience that with, with each other and our friendship all the time around issues and topics. How I consume it and process it and how you consume it and process it is uniquely different. And how we honor that experience is sort of a it's learning, right? And our audience members need
1: to hear
0: that and know that that's okay.
1: That's right. That is 100% okay. And you're going to make mistakes along the way. Yeah. Without further ado, I'm really, really excited for this conversation. I think this is a really important one. I think it ties into so many of the conversations we've had. But Dr. Harvey Hinton, so privileged and honored that he would join us for a really important and timely conversation. Dr. Hinton, are you there?
2: I'm here. Can you hear me? We yeah. can.
1: We can. Good morning. Yeah. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Thank Good you morning. so much for, for being here today. How are you doing this morning.
2: I'm great, man. Um, we got Hinton Homeschool Academy happening upstairs. So, you know, hopefully we won't have any amazing <laughs> interruptions this morning. <laughs> hey,
1: we, I think we all can relate a little bit to saying, hey, whenever we're calling in on any meeting, there, there's a lot going on in our lives right now. So I think we can all empathize with that situation. Yeah. We're all showing grace to each other in these yeah. crazy times. Hey, before we, we dive into this for our listeners, I just want to make sure that we properly introduce our guest. Dr. Harvey Hinton III is the Executive Director of Healing with Care. He's a native of Durham, North Carolina, and has a unique skill set and visionary leadership style rooted in servant leadership. Most recently serving as the Director of Men's Achievement Center at North Carolina Central University, go Eagles. He has a PhD in Curriculum and Instruction with a specialty in Curriculum Studies from Purdue University. He's got an MS in Curriculum and Instruction with a specialty in Career and Technical Education from Purdue. He's got a BS in Industrial Technology with a specialty in Manufacturing Systems from NCA&T. Dr. Hinton is passionate about creating educational opportunities to address social and cultural factors that impede personal success. He has a wealth of experience serving in a variety of roles advocating for members of marginalized communities. So if that doesn't show you that we have a lot to learn today, sit back and we are privileged to have Dr. Hinton joining us for this conversation. Appreciate cool. you being on the show today. Tell us more about your story and then what led you to serve in the role you do now with, with Healing With Care.
2: Yeah, cool. So um, I'm, a, I'm a, just a naive guy from Durham who thought that you know, you're supposed to do the right things and try to help others, right? <laughs> and that's, that's essentially, I think, where the story starts. I think uh, growing up in Durham, Yes, I am. A, I'm a Aggie all day long. But growing up in Durham, you're gonna get taught by people from Central. It just comes with the territory, and being able to be taught by people from NCCU, there was always this truth and service element of what they did, and so there was always this theme of being community oriented. So I've always been taught that throughout my lifetime, and I had the opportunity to go to Ant to play football. You know, like many young kids, I'm assuming, we thought we were going to be professional athletes. And that just didn't work out, right? And so you always, we always start to have a backup plan. I like tinkering with things, putting things together. Manufacturing just kind of came naturally. And so, you know, that's just like the, the trajectory of being a good boy. You know, you just do what you're told and you try to, you know, go out and help others. I do want to say that CARE, CARE's been here for uh, 26 years. It was started by some fascinating women Dr. Sharon Elliott Bynum, her sisters, Pat Amici and Carolyn Hinton, I take no credit for what they've done. They were some women who had a heart of gold when it came to making sure that Black people had access to health care. Dr. Bynum was a nurse and she was able to establish Durham's first free health clinic. We have a dental clinic there. Care provides a substance abuse counseling, case management, you know, people living with HIV, STI testing, you know, we're looking at the five major health disparities of the community and coming up with programmatic solutions to address that. That's what CARE has been doing for the last 26 years. And it's dirty work. It's very necessary work. It's work that people, the benefits of doing this work are amazing. You can't put a price on making life better for someone else, right? Like that's one of the most gratifying rewards is when you can see that you made life better for someone else. And CARE has been this amazing place. Part of its success was its ability to work out of its space. CARE is located downtown Durham. If you came in Durham 20 years ago, downtown didn't look like how it does right now. You know, downtown was ground zero of poverty and despair in in the city. And so CARE was able to come into a place where, you know, I'm not saying that CARE cleaned it up by itself, but CARE was able to come into a place and um, provided people with a sunshine ray of hope, if you will. And it was able to jumpstart a lot of the progress that we see in our, our nonprofit space, even places like ReCity, Rob, CARE had a shared workspace. You know, Dr. Bonham was all about giving black people an opportunity to get started. CARE had urban farming. They had the open community garden. You know, they had the food giveaways. They had the blood drives. You know, they were doing all these things. They were housing folks. All these things now that I see a lot of nonprofits just do one or two of those many things CARE was doing. They do one or two of those things, and they're able to have sustainable operations doing so. So I think what CARE did was it provided a blueprint for those who were A, serious and concerned about helping others, I think care was an inspiration to many. I also think it showed people how to maneuver in the nonprofit space, how to find opportunities to support yourself. I was lucky enough to find care. I've always known about care. Um, I have a personal relationship with the the people who started care. And it was always fascinating to see Dr. Bonham. I remember one time I was, I visit care and I had a conversation with her in the back in the garden and I was working with young men at NCCU and Durham Public Schools. And I just had this vision. I said, Man, Care would be a great spot for my all boys school. I could have my boys downtown Durham, and we could do this and we could do that. And she just kind of gave me that stern look like, Hey, buddy, back, back away. <laughs> this isn't your space. This isn't your time. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> but I just say I just use that example is just, you know, care was such an inspirational space, you know, and it just when you come in there, you just get consumed with possibility and hope and you just you just start to dream. And that's the environment that that created. And I think it's a wonderful opportunity to continue doing that work of helping people dream. I think the conversation of racism is a perfect place for care to engage itself in. We now understand that racism is a public health issue. It's tiring, it's stress. It makes you not want to do anything. You don't want to go outside. You don't know if what's going to happen to you. Am I going to get shot? There's got to be a place to debrief. And so that's why, you know, we rebranded Care to the Healing Center. So it's now Care to Healing Center. We changed the acronym from the Center for Accessible, Affordable Health Research and Education. Now the acronym is Community Action, Advocacy, Restoration and Empowerment. Mm -hmm. We want to be that spot that it was intended to be, where people come and find hope and opportunities to get away from the despair. Mm -hmm. My work on racism, my conversation around racism, all of this is the residual of me being present, if you will. Like that was not the goal. You understand what I'm saying? The goal was not to discuss racism. The goal was me being there as a black person just trying to figure out how to make improvements. This thing about having to be part of the community that you serve, I've had no choice. That's the only way it's been presented to me.
0: Thank you for that. That was I was leaning in as you were as you were talking so much of that. I feel <laughs> what you just said reminds me of the interview surrounding Jacob Blake's shooting. Mm-hmm. When Doc Rivers said, "I just wish I could just be a basketball coach," you know, like, right. can I just be a basketball coach? But in every turn, we're basketball coaches, we're players, and we're we're black men who are traumatized or scared to walk right. And and we have to represent an entire community, an entire race on this topic but it would be nice to just be a basketball coach. I mean, he didn't belabor that, like I'm belaboring it. But yeah, the point yeah. for me resonated. I was just like, yeah, because he's getting asked five million questions that most people don't have to shift their, their mindset, right? And into educate Absolutely. and to sensitize people and to provide that personal experience, which is personal. It's like hard to have right. to share. You know, he breaks down and cries because it's personal for, he feels it as a black man and as one who's a caretaker in many ways, a father figure to those players. So I hear you when, I, when you say like being asked to wear these multiple hats simply because you have that lived experience, right? And taking it on because it has to be taken on. I love that you said it was a dirty, ugly business, dirty, ugly, mm-hmm. what you, yeah, truth. You were like, these yeah. are the truths, right? Um, yes. Yeah. So it's so good. So thank you for just, laying that out there for our listeners because sometimes we do think like what do I need to read what do I need to learn so that I could just be better but you're saying and it's true and I just like that you just said it it's a nasty conversation and are you ready to jump in
2: It's, it's very nasty
0: yeah let's talk about this article I think that when you talk about blinding, unless you call this forward, I don't think people would really recognize it. I've been thinking about this gap of the nonprofit gap just just very recently, probably last eighteen months, with some work that that I've been involved with in partnership with an organization I used to lead, the Leadership Triangle and United Way, creating this pillar around equity and leadership and opportunities to work on that gap here locally. And so when you shared this article with Rob and it became the topic of this conversation, I was like, this is great. I want to hear your perspective on it because it's true. So for our listeners, we're talking about how white people conquered the nonprofit industry by Anastasia Tompkin. The premise here simply is that 80% of nonprofit leaders are white. When you get into the higher echelon, like the big nonprofits, right? Like the United Way is what I just said, are led by white men in particular. But if you break down who is being, air quotes, served, The individuals and communities that are being served and that have that direct engagement are typically black and brown people, like majority black and brown people being led by majority white people and in the higher echelons, if you will, larger nonprofits, white men. So what is that? We talk about proximity, right? We talk about leadership that exists already within community and how this disconnect is one that should be critically analyzed. And so that article does that and asks some pretty provocative questions. And so as you think about that article and as you shared it with us, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that dynamic and share with our listeners how you've seen it play out.
2: You know, I'm new to the nonprofit world. I've worked with nonprofits through my experiences in education. This reality didn't catch me off guard off guard because, you know, that's that's who we see. But I think the underlying point, when I when I begin to think about it, leadership in a white supremacist, quote unquote, I say that's that's a dirty word too because <laughs> white people apparently aren't doing good. If they were doing good, they wouldn't be fighting some of these issues, right? <laughs> mm. So <laughs> it's a strange word. It's a very strange term. <laughs> but the idea. Is that it's not based on meritocracy. We're not picking people because of who has the best skill set. Right. Nonprofits are businesses, but at the end of the day, they rely heavily on donations. So, what black people really know—people who have big money, right? Where are the big money connections in the quote-unquote you know black community, right? So, if you're talking about a people who have a history of constructing systems and social systems to benefit them. And the nonprofit arm um, is just another tool to reinforce its position. So it, it doesn't strike me one bit as a surprise. Right. I think the part about it is that the author says that for white people who recognize this, she says it's no new thing for a white organization to recognize this. Everybody knows it, and everybody has slogans and statements and whatever that recognizes it. But she says that if, if a white person would take true action, it would result in career suicide. Hmm. And I think that's the frightening part about it, is that I know that human beings know empathy and they know how others feel. They know what they do to other people. Mm-hmm. And I don't think anyone wants to risk career suicide. So right. that's the scary part about this. Like, what, what what are people supposed to do and what do they really want to see change? Yeah.
0: What, what's the motivation, right? What what's is
2: the, the motivation? Motive? When they looked at the research on bias and racism and all this good stuff, they found that, you know, implicit bias. Well, this is what they say. You know, scholars from the Ivy League schools, they say that people are born with implicit bias. They have to go be socialized to accept others. But during moments of tragic experiences, they revert back to the natural instinct to protect their own. And that's mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that could be frightening. If you really understand that, you know, there are moments, for example, a car crashed or, you know, a house falls, a tree falls in your house. People can come together. Right. And people people won't see color and race and gender and sexuality at that moment. Right. right? But economic crisis. Yeah. Oh, that's much different. Hmm. So violence doesn't look the same, but it's just as violent because we're talking about your career. And so, you know, this notion that we can talk about racism and call it what it is, put it right on its head and still not be able to move it and do anything about it. Hey, that's. (laughs) Mm.
1: (laughs) Harvey, you you hit on something there that I think really resonates with the conversations that we've had up to this point on this podcast of addressing root causes, right? When you talk about Mm -hmm. issues of injustice, which is the whole reason we're doing this podcast is to to name these issues and dive deep and trace them down to the root. We talk about the 400-year-old tree a lot. Right, right. That this is gonna take a lot of digging and it's gonna have to be multifaceted. But I think you've named a root here of injustice when it comes to this idea of self-preservation. Absolutely. And these are conversations that I've had a lot and I've reflected on a lot myself as a white man in the nonprofit space. This tension between what are you gonna prioritize more? Impact? or self-preservation and what are you gonna do when those two things seemingly conflict? Because absolutely, I think that you will, everyone will reach a time, and this isn't just limited to the nonprofit space, although that's the conversation we're having today. Every leader, maybe even every day, I mean, I, I won't even say at some point. I mean, I think daily we have this choice between are we gonna prioritize true impact or are we gonna prioritize self-preservation? And what do we do if those two things are at odds with each other? Because right. you named servant leadership earlier, We've been talking about leadership a lot so far in this season. You know, True servant leadership is inherently sacrificial. It Absolutely. comes at a cost. And you can't have it both ways oftentimes where you get to, to preserve yourself and your career at the same time of having the, the, the impact you could have. You're going to have to choose one of those paths. And I think the question and the challenge is which path are you going to choose? Not to say that you can't have a career, but it should not rank higher than impact. And if push comes to shove, are, what are you willing to give up? I think it is this notion you're hitting on of self-preservation. And so yeah. to me, that's something that's really good for me to reflect on other white people listening in. I want to ask this question. You know, The article mentions Tane Trailer, who oversees grant making at the Candida Fund. She's quoted as saying, we still trust white folks to tackle black folks' problems. Mm-hmm. White folks desperately need to reflect on what it means to stop centering themselves in this work. That's a, I mean, that is a powerful quote.
0: I just want to frame that up really quick. And what she's saying is the we, and in that case, she oversees grant making. So what she's saying is foundations will inherently write checks, those big money checks to white philanthropic leaders, nonprofit leaders, because there's more trust in white leadership over black leadership. Yes. Not so much black communities trusting white people to come in and solve problems, although that is a conversation that could be had, right? But that's not what she's saying here. That's
1: right. Within that. the context of philanthropy, which I think is a tremendously right. important clarification there, Jess.
2: Being at higher ed, that was one of the things that we learned. I've had several colleagues participate on uh, grant circles, and they've been in places like National Science Foundation, all these big places that grant money. And the stories of the grant being for minority-serving communities. And the grantees being a circle of white folks who read the applications through the lens of how does this impact my child? You know, we just learn on so many different levels that the game is rigged. Mm -hmm. You know, this COVID pandemic season, there's been all these dollars floating around, around nonprofits, around minority serving institutions. You know, it's like there is no Santa Claus. You know, you, you just, you know, every year you get hyped up around these funders sending out these calls and you fill out the application and all you get is a thank you. We pick someone else. You never know who the other person is. You never know what was wrong with your app. And you spend good time writing these applications. You know, this has been an experience that anyone that's relying on grants, whether it be nonprofits or uh, educational spaces, this is a reality that we've learned that black grant writers, you got to know people, right? We've given up this whole notion of you know somebody has some money here's 25,000 you can get it it's like you're going to waste 3 hours a day for the next 2 weeks writing this and not get a you know <laughs> it, yeah. it's it's it can be very very disheartening and you know our elders in the African American community have done a great job of not wearing the pain outwardly they taught to and they would they had to as a survival tactic they didn't wear this pain outwardly the younger generations, we much less tolerant, right? Much less caught up in, po- you know, respectability politics. And the younger people have very short, they don't get it, right? They don't, they don't know all of that. They're not even looking to learn it and they shouldn't have to. And so I think that's where we're going to really have to do some deep looking moving forward. Once we kind of understand it, this is about self-preservation. What does it mean for us? Rob, you talked about the the root cause. That's something, my manufacturing background, that's obviously something that we did all the time was root cause analysis. And we were asked, one of the most common tactics was the five whys. We asked why five times. You say, why would a person do such a thing? And self-preservation definitely emerges in the conversation. What does that mean historically for white men to want to ensure their future? If racism went away, would white people go away? Racism puts people in boxes. And so have we learned to love our spaces in the boxes so much that we wouldn't know how to exist outside of a structure called racism. Racism can put people of other colors in places to continue the same work to protect a certain position. You know, racism is it's a messy toolkit, man, but it works. <laughs> and so that's what makes it very difficult to dismantle because even the people who are being oppressed by it, they can think that it benefits them. And that's what we see in white America right now. No other way to explain it. And you know, these these comedians, these night show, talk show hosts, they they are doing their best to try to show you how horrible white America is at denying its own reality. It's frightening. It's frightening the degree it will go to hide its hand, Mm -hmm. so to speak. And that's what happens with these grants. You put your best ideas out, or whatever, whatever, the end of the day, that's not even what it's about. We've had to relearn what it means to write a grant because it's not even about your best intent anymore. So, you know, it's very disheartening. <laughs> and self-preservation, I, impact, right? We want to show that we're making a difference. And I think that when you do this work, you have to have a strong spiritual grounding. You just have to. I can remember being in school, in high school, in advanced physics. And our instructor told us, I'm not going to say her name because she was a beautiful woman. She said, "You guys are smart. Do not go into education. Go make money and take care of yourselves." Mm-hmm. And I thought she was—I thought she was being sarcastic. Mm-hmm. I thought she was just trying to use a reverse whatever to remind us what our responsibilities were to the community. I wonder about that statement now. Yeah. Because there's no immediate reward if you're not spiritually grounded.
0: You said you've been in this nonprofit space fairly recently. You're kind of getting it getting your feet wet. Dr. Bynum definitely left an incredible legacy. Mm -hmm. Was a shining light in the community. You clearly are picking up that mantle and carrying it well for care. When you think about other folks, black folks, people of color who want to step into this work, either in the nonprofit world or not. Do you have some advice? for people of color on how to navigate the dynamics of the topic we were just talking about. It's sort of around this white dominated space in the nonprofit sector. What would advice would you give somebody if they called you and said, this is what I want to do?
2: Um, <laughs> I was going to say, shout out to Julie Wills. I went through her um, yeah, Julie. Uh, mm-hmm. leadership development program. And that was one of the questions and things she would often tease out is why do you want to do this work? And maybe this isn't for you. And I think that's, that's real. I think that my experience has taught me, and what I've tried to do, I've tried to work within the institutions that were already there. I think that starting stuff, it looks good from the outside, right? When you hear about the Sharon Bynums, you don't know the full story. You don't, you don't understand the weight. You don't understand the skill set. You just don't know everything. You understand what I'm saying? And so, it's not safe to try to mimic the heroics of another person. Yeah. I learned that in the classroom watching um Ron Clark, watching how dynamic he was with Black kids. And I tried to go into the classroom and emulate what I just saw in this movie. It was yeah. a movie. You can't, you can't just... <laughs> it's not that simple. You know what I mean? And so I would strongly encourage people who have passion to try to link their passions up with existing organizations. Mm-hmm. Just yeah. to understand what it really takes, because the nonprofit world, I think one of the faults of it for for the African-American community, we're very mission driven people and we're looking for ways a lot of times to fund our ministry.
0: Right.
2: And when I say ministry, I don't necessarily mean religious affiliation. I just mean that that inner calling, right? That inner thing that we feel that is our work. We're looking for a way to fund it. And we think that nonprofit is the best way to do that. I don't think so. I think there are other ways to do this. I think there are more strategic ways. I'm looking for better ways to explore social entrepreneurship because nonprofit I don't think is the way to go. I think if you're thinking that you're going to go at this because they got grant money out here, <laughs> you're fooling yourself. Hmm. That's like going to the NBA. No, it's not going to work for you. You know, you're going to have to go get a job, right? So <laughs> I think it's the same thing. I think we have to understand if we do have a mission that we think is important, how do we exploit it? How do we capitalize on that? This is a capitalist society. We cannot afford to give away our talents. And so we're gonna have to figure that part out. And I don't think you can do that all the time by yourself. So I would strongly encourage you to link up with someone else who's doing what it is you wanna do and learn as much as you can and figure out ways to operate independently without having a nonprofit Oversight thingy, thingy—that's just not going to work for you.
0: <laughs> Thank you for that. Figure out what your purpose is, and it yeah. may not be a nonprofit.
2: Yeah, Harvey, I'd love for you
1: to tell us more. To what? What is your personal calling in this work, and what gives you hope to keep going? Because you're you're talking about a, a game. <laughs> you're talking about a game that's rigged, right? Like straight up. <laughs> and you're saying, "Hey, don't go into that game unless you've got eyes wide open." Or seriously, consider right. don't going in at all. Because right. the deck is stacked against. I've seen that firsthand. I know Jess has as well. And yet here you are, the executive director yeah, yeah, of a nonprofit yeah. organization, right? A contradiction to your own advice, right? Absolutely. What, what is your calling? Why Why are you where you are? And what gives you hope to keep going and showing up to work?
2: You know, it's funny because that the answer to that question has changed many times. And right now I have two daughters. And I just, I cannot accept the fact that they don't have an opportunity. I might not agree with the world and how things are, but I cannot just give up whatever on them having an opportunity. So I used to think it was cliches when people say do it for their children and blah, blah, blah. But now I, I really understand having having two beautiful young girls what that means. I'm one of those people before I had kids, I thought I had a calling. I thought I had a mission and that was to lead and heal black people. I thought that my work was to help create opportunities, and I'm still led by that. I find the joy in that. I've had the opportunity to work in corporate America, big institutions. I've been in higher education. I've had a number of experiences to show me what's out there, so to speak, so I know what I'm not missing. I'm okay with where I am right now, but I'm definitely eager to turn this wheel a little bit faster because I recognize that we need resources and I need more. I started off I, I really I don't like to talk about it like this, but I really started off with this expectation and understanding that I was giving up, you know, when I left corporate America in 2003 to go to grad school, I walked away feeling as though I was giving up whatever that six figure life was going to be. I, I had it. You know, and I walked away from that feeling as though I'm not going to get that again. And now I'm looking back at that decision and looking back at that mentality saying, nah, buddy, you're going to get that six years back. You're going to because you have to. You can't survive without resources in this space. And so you can't look at it without a plan of how you're going to take care of yourself is all I'm trying to say. You can't go into it first thinking about the heroics of the person who you read about or saw on television and not understanding that that was, has been edited. And you you have to have a clear vision of what are you going to do for yourself? You can't miss that. You, that's not selfish. That's, that's necessary for your well-being. You know, I think one of the things that allows people to thrive during times like this is their ability to understand that their basic needs are met. So if you can say, I have a roof, I have some food, I have a few people who like me, I can quarantine. This is going to be easy. But when you don't have those things, quarantine is kind of difficult. And so I have to recognize that I have put myself in a position that where I can have some of those things. And so I can't lose focus that, you know, because I don't have everything the way I want it, that it's not good enough, that I, I don't have any quote unquote hope to move forward. You know, so that's, that's where I find the balance. You know, I, I recognize that I'm not here to, to sit on the sidelines. I'm a fighter. I'm the guy that's going to get thrown in the ring. So I need to be prepared (laughs) for when that time comes. (laughs)
0: That's great. And helpful, I think, to our listeners who are like, well, maybe I shouldn't. But at the same time, maybe you should. Yeah. Right? Maybe you should. Maybe you need to get the center of the ring and and fight that fight in your way. It's a matter of just what is that and understanding.
2: You know, the other side of this is I have a very... My experiences in vocational education and curriculum studies, you've got to have a strategy on what it is you're trying to build. And I just personally, from my observation, it seems as though that the nonprofit world is created to offset the work of the social system, if you will, the government. And mm-hmm. supposedly you're doing the work that has a greater good mm-hmm. for all. Right. And how is that supposed to be funded? Right. You no. Know? I've given many presentations to educators on black boys, and I started off the presentation, I would say very boldly, I would say, what happens when all the black boys turn their hats around, pull their pants up, tuck in their shirts and pass your test? They walk Mm -hmm. into your classroom, yes, ma'am, good morning, yes, sir, no, sir. What happens next? Yeah. And that's a question that doesn't get answered. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> it doesn't get answered you know it's like oh i never thought about that so what was yeah. the point what right. was the point of all of this if you haven't thought about that right right if you're putting all this energy to turn his hat around and pull his pants up what's the point what are you willing to and that's the whole thing right so if we don't have a, a point and a strategy let's find something else to do yeah you know the, the nonprofit world um i think it requires some Creativity, some innovation, and obviously you got to be connected. I'm fortunate yeah. enough that Care has been here. I wouldn't dare. I mean, I. So many people have said, "Why don't you start your own? Why don't you start your own? Why?" Care has been here. There's no need to start another one. Not for me. Not right now. I can do personal business all day, but there's no need. We have a community operation here. Let's let's build it. Let's work it yeah. together.
0: I love that. Okay, so we are now landing the plane. This has been an incredible discussion. I've enjoyed this a great deal. Thank you.
2: Thank you.
0: You took us on a journey. I loved it. How can our listeners do one thing to show up practically around the work? What would you say?
2: It's an individual individual fight, right? It's individual work. You have to work where you are. And you just have to start there. You got to start where you are, doing that deep, reflective thing in the mirror. You know, where am I? Yes. I want to see white people work in white spaces. Mm. I can't wait. You know, when I was when I was teaching, (laughs) I would love to tell white people that, like, stay out of my community. Stop trying to come save little black kids. Please go deal with your nephew. Please go deal with your aunt. Show me that. Show me an effort that you understand what it is you're doing to other people and show me your commitment to stop doing that. But this is all it's all personal. It's all really looking at where you are. The Booker T. Washington buckets and bootstraps conversation. Mm -hmm. You know, where are you and what are you doing? How can you help? You know, it may not be in your best interest to be on the front line somewhere.
0: I love that. I love that. But we have said a number of times on this podcast that people need to take a personal and spiritual accounting. Like they need Mm -hmm. to start there. Where are you? Mm -hmm. And that's what you're saying. And frankly, you gave the show up moment. White people need to work in white spaces. Mm. I mean, that's a challenge. I think our listeners would be challenged by that, frankly. So I appreciate yeah. that. That is a show up moment. Hmm.
2: And let's be clear, that doesn't mean that your work doesn't benefit another community, but do the proper vetting. I've had people and I've said to people, you know, go to your organization and say, help us out. You know, do, do what you have to do to be a voice for us, but don't just make it about you being here. Hmm. You have to yeah. do it over there. That's what the resources are. Mm. Yeah. It's not us. We know, we know what the situation is.
1: Yeah. That's we
2: live right.
1: It. Right. You know? Man. That's so good. Harvey, I knew you wouldn't disappoint and you, you have not. <laughs> you've given us a lot to process here and we just, we're grateful for the time that you would do
2: and, Thank and you so much for, having and for me. your honesty good.
1: and just the, the way that you have, you've been laboring in this space and are fighting for change and you're resiliently continuing. I think you've given a lot of, to our listeners to think about what does it look like for them to do that personal accounting, depending on who, the, who they are and where they might be when they listen to this, you know, mm-hmm. start there. I can't think of any other way to wrap it than that. So we appreciate you, man. Thank you so much.
0: Love it. Thanks, Dr. Hinton.
2: Thank you. Thank you.
0: That was definitely one of my favorite podcasts, episodes. Wow. For, I don't even know all the reasons, but it was one of my favorite, not there, I'm not discrediting any of the other ones because they're all so powerful for me, but for whatever reason, this one resonates with me just so often authentically honest and I think maybe in some cases it's pulled some threads that we've been trying to like communicate but like this notion of the nasty conversation that dirty ugly truth mm. like mm. the language that he used is just so like in your face and kind of forces you to say I opt in or I can't and mm. that in and of itself is, is a true place to sort of start like why asking five why's I mean just like Literally, I've just enjoyed this because it feels so tangible, like I can get my teeth in some of this. And mm. I hope our listeners felt the same way, felt challenged, but, but you feel like it's a comp, like I can take that on. There's some of that I can do. I can, I can, I can wrestle with my own, my own perspective on community. I can wrestle with, hmm, I never realized that most people in the nonprofit leadership are white. Why is that? Or maybe I did realize it and I didn't recognize it as part of this, like, ugly conversation.
1: Mm. I was taking notes right along with you. I feel like I couldn't write fast enough. I mean, these ideas, like, don't try to mimic the heroics of another person.
0: Yeah, I love that.
1: You know, we've all probably tried that at one point in time. We watched that movie. We've seen that hero and we try to go be them. We're like, yeah, that's not going to work. Yep.
0: He said edited. He goes, and I wrote it down, edited heroics. Mm. Don't try to mimic it because it's all been edited
1: but try to leverage your passions within existing organizations, right? Look, looking for ways to fund our calling, knowing that that's an inherently flawed system, but we're forced to try to navigate it. But he he's saying, hey, look, nonprofits go in with eyes wide open or explore social entrepreneurship, right? Like he would actually yeah. not encourage people to take the nonprofit route because the game is very much rigged and leaders of color are struggling in that rigged game so much, yeah. can't afford to give away their talents. I love that. like. I love that and that, that is so true. And that should resonate with us. Like who would, who would say that's okay. But the margin isn't there. When you look yeah. at how wealth compounds and like we're asking people of color who are coming from historically disenfranchised communities and systems to then be the ones that give away their talents. Like, no, we can't. How wrong is that? Yeah. And then he also saying, don't do it by yourself. Link up with others. Learn as much as you can. And he landed the plane here beautifully. Just like, I want to see white people work in white spaces. And you were right. I was doing the air dumbbells over here whatever. I, I, was, I was pumping them because to me, that's, that's what I've come to see so clearly. And This is what the article is quoted as saying. A good white leader is a good white follower. Mm. A good white leader is a good yeah. white follower because a good leader must know when to defer to the expertise of those more qualified than themselves. And I don't mean paper qualifications. A good leader must know when to step down and step back. And I think that is a powerful summary statement, especially for white people to think about what does it look like for me to step down and step back when I should, so a leader of color could step in and then I need to step in with other white people.
0: Yeah, that's it. That was well said, Rob but language matters. I don't know if our listeners caught that, but Rob and I take a lot of notes and we we don't try to repackage what our people are saying completely. We actually use it. I, I think it's important for our listeners to very tactically and practically think about how to communicate this work, right? And the message, figure out what your message is, figure out where your values are, figure out where you stand on these issues. And then Then take the notes, you know, go ahead and give Dr. Hinton credit. But if you're taking notes, credit him and use the language because language really matters. And trying to fumble your way around messaging, but eventually you got to hone that craft. And we don't talk about this enough, but storytelling and messaging and how we communicate our values is really, really important. If you want it to land on other people and for them to sync with them where they're like, oh, just said something to me 20 years ago that changed my life. Well, that that is intentional work. So language matters. And I hope that you got a lot out of today because I think there was a lot of really beautiful language used in how to tell the story of this work.
1: There it is. Mic drop. All right. We'll see y'all next time. Next time.
0: Thanks so much for listening to Just. In the spirit of sharing, if you like what you've heard, tell a friend about the show and give us a five-star rating and review.
1: Many thanks to DJ p Dog and producer Low Key for producing the music for our show. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening. Here's a preview of our next show.
2: The statistic right now is that 50,000 children are expelled from preschool a year. We must stop expelling our African-American boys because of the difference of learning.